Well, good morning, y'all. Good morning. How you doing? Doing all right? Well, I'm glad to be uh, joining you here this morning. My name is Ty Hall. I'm the worship pastor here at FCC. I'm the new guy still. Uh, so if I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to meet you afterward at the chili cook-off. I've heard a lot about all this chili. It's, I've only been here for a few months, and I've heard so much about this chili and about some certain rivalries that have developed amongst the congregation, unnamed rivalries, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Uh, before we jump into uh, our message this morning, I would love to pray, ask God to speak to us. So would you all please pray with me? God, thank you so much uh, for this morning. God, we do uh, thank you for all that is going on here. We thank you for the Kais and their testimony. We thank you for the opportunity to be community together and, and eat good food and uh, laugh and, and just be together. God, we pray that as we uh, jump into your word this morning, God, allow us to listen well. God, uh, soften our hearts. Allow us to hear your voice speak through me this morning. God, allow it to be your words, not mine. Uh, and God, uh, we pray that you would bless uh, our time together. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you are just joining us for the first time this week, we are in the middle of a series. We are jumping into the third week of our series on the letter to the church in Galatia, the book of Galatians. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to, I would highly encourage you to take a look back at the past two weeks. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Will opened us up in chapter one of the book of Galatians. He gives us Paul, the author's uh, kind of credentials as an apostle, and gets some greetings out of the way. And then Pastor Eric jumped us in with chapter two and gave us a peek into Paul's uh, mindset regarding the separation between Jewish and Gentile believers. And now we get to chapter three. We get to chapter three and Paul is done with the intros. He's done with the warm-up. He's ready to go. But I think it's actually helpful for us to see where he's going um, before we actually jump into the book itself. So we're actually going to start at the end of the chapter uh, because the last few verses of Galatians 3 actually sort of act sort of like a thesis statement for Paul's whole message in this chapter. So we're going to start in Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29. It goes like this. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This idea of God's people being unified, breaking down these barriers that people have put between themselves, that's supremely important to Paul in this message, in this chapter. He wants all of the believers to be well aware of how unified they should be. But now that we've got our target sort of set for the morning, this is where we're headed, let's actually see how Paul starts this uh, chapter. Be ready for some whiplash. <laughs> Verses one through three. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Oh, Paul. He gets so sassy. He gets so sarcastic. This is a, a perfect version of Paul. I love reading this because I resonate so well with that. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, if, if you have worked with kids at some point, whether it be in a daycare or a preschool or some kind of teaching, would you just raise a hand for me? All right. 
You ever been uh, working with kids and you do your best to explain something and then they just kind of look at you with like this blank stare of confusion? One time, uh, as I was going through college in the summers, I would work at a day camp. Uh, and in the Midwest, where I'm from, summer is very different than what I've heard it is here. Uh, it's very hot. Uh, there's no ocean breeze to cool us off. It's more humid. Uh, and we still have the 100-degree week on a regular basis. So this was a 10-week summer camp. I'm, we're in about week six or seven, so the staff is getting a little run down. We're a little tired. There's hundreds of kids at this thing every week, and we would have interest-based classes. Uh, so I'm teaching, I'm filling in for someone teaching a crafting class. I'm not good at crafting. So I'm doing my best every single day to try and give clear instructions for what we're doing. And we're doing things like soapbox cars and, and little rubber band catapults and things. So we're, for the day, we're making this little rocket ship that's going to use a balloon to propel itself. And I'm, I'm using all the best terminology I can. I've got a whiteboard, and I'm drawing diagrams and things. And then this one little boy, a very sweet little boy, raises his hand very sheepishly, and he just goes, I just have one question. Are we building a rocket or a penguin? <laughs> Not once did I mention birds, the Arctic, any animal. And somehow, we got to penguin. I feel like Paul in that moment, I resonate with Paul just looking and going, no, we're not building a penguin. I feel like Paul looks at the Galatians and says, Jesus Christ was crucified and he started this work through the Spirit, and now you're trying to work through yourselves. What is going on? How did you get from A to B? Paul is trying to bring unity in this letter, and I love the dichotomy between, between the end of the chapter where it's, hey, we're all going to be unified, we're all going to be one family, one church, and the start of this letter is, y'all are really dumb. In some translations, instead of foolish, they'll use the word witless, thoughtless, or even just stupid. Paul is just going at it. I love this side of Paul. It honestly makes me laugh every time. He's been sarcastic in this letter already, but this is a whole different level. He hits them with the ancient version of, just let me ask you one question. Hold the phone. Hypothetically speaking, if you're saying this, then that means Paul is dumbfounded at this point. The believers in Galatia have been all turned around by this overemphasis of Jewish customs and practices. So Paul hits them with the classic, all right, let's try this again. Let's, let's rewind. Let's start from the beginning. Let's go over this one more time. And he actually goes uh, all the way back. Well, not all the way back, but pretty far back. Uh, we're going to start in verse 5. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul, still being a little sassy, still read this with a hint of sarcasm, takes a shot at the works of the law. This is his version of, all right, come on, guys. We're going to try this again. You've seen these miracles happen. Did it happen because of the law? No. It happened because of God's spirit that dwells among us after Jesus' ascension. But at this point, he says, all right, we're going to go way back to a very prominent person in Jewish culture. We're going to go back to Abraham. This is a people, this is a guy that people would know. People would know Abraham's story. They would know his uh, prominence in culture and history. And Paul's going to untangle things all the way from back there. Paul says that Abraham is credited righteousness because of his faith. 
Now, uh, there's a little bit of a uh, discernment here. This uh, credited righteousness is not salvation. It's actually a, um, an example from the legal system. In the midst of Abraham's sinful humanity, he is simultaneously unrighteous and righteous. God credits Abraham this righteousness because of his faith. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on the letter to the Galatians, depicts this righteousness as the establishment of God's covenant with Abraham, rather than any sort of individual morality that Abraham possesses. This is important later to Paul's message in this chapter, so keep this in mind. Paul goes on to depict two different people groups kind of stemming from Abraham's faith. We meet the first in verses 7 through 9. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This first group of people is the children of Abraham, but not by his physical lineage. This is Abraham's spiritual lineage. Paul is, again, writing to a church that's struggling to reconcile the difference between these two heritages. So that line in verse 7, those who have faith are children of Abraham, is crucial to his letter. It's also extremely important to note that Paul continues to call out Abraham's faith as the defining characteristic. It's not his culture, it's not his heritage, it's not even uh, his uh, uh, lineage, it's his faith. He is the man of faith. We meet our second group of people who respond uh, differently in verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In this section, Paul kind of starts to call out two different qualities to the law. There's a good and there's a bad. We'll start with the bad first. Paul points out that this law is a curse in some way. Cursed is everyone under the law. And there's a reason for that because the law is sort of like a magnifying glass. It shows us all of the ways that God's people, all people, fall short of God. The law points that out clearly. But it's also good. The law for a time gave God's people guidelines, guardrails, uh, bumpers on a bowling lane to kind of bounce between as best they could. Now, sometimes they throw the ball a little too hard and go over the bumper still, but they were there. They were present. God's people tried their best to follow, but even still they couldn't. And thankfully, the law has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Christ redeems us from this curse of the law. And Paul uses some very specific Jewish imagery in the second half of verse 13 and in verse 14 to drive home the point for those believers who are struggling with their Jewish heritage. Paul tries to make this even more clear for them to understand, and he sort of goes into his own little sermon illustration. So rather than try to make my own, I'm just going to let Paul do the legwork on this one. In verse 15 through 18, he says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Again, Paul's trying to make this as clear as possible, that God set things in motion hundreds of years before the law was even established. This law that the Jewish believers are claiming is crucial to the gospel has no standing whatsoever in the promise of Abraham. It's not like a, an iPhone where you need a new charger or a new operating system every time they release something new. The new thing does not make the old thing obsolete in this case. The promise still stands and in fact has been standing and the law has nothing to do with it. There is no way that the law changes that promise and it's actually a blessing in that way. And again, Paul points out that the seed of Abraham is not the biological family of Abraham. It is the family, the spiritual family, through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, that the promise is passed on to. At this point, this, the chapter sort of feels like Paul hitting the same points over and over and over and over again. And as I was reading it, I kind of got a flashback to uh, when I was younger and my parents were teaching me how to drive. Uh, has anyone had the pleasure of teaching a teenager how to, how to drive in this room? <laughs> I, I, I put pleasure in air quotes. <laughs> because there's some stress involved in it, but I can remember uh, my parents sitting in the passenger seat next to me and giving me the same crucial tips over and over and over again. Watch your speed. Make sure you're checking your mirrors. I swear, use your turn signal. Some of us still need that reminder today. Um, but it was crucial. Because all of those reminders, I was learning how to drive. I needed those tips on those basic things that have to happen as you're driving. And thankfully, I still drive today. I'm still here. I haven't crashed and burned or anything like that. But I don't need those reminders anymore because they've been ingrained into my behavior. Paul, instead of giving us driving tips, is giving us spiritual trip, uh, tips that should be ingrained into our life. The family, is God, uh, the family of God is connected through faith. The law, while helpful for a time, has been fulfilled. The gospel is Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, Paul continues on, and we're going to jump a little bit ahead. We're going to jump to verses 21 through 23. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Again, hammering home his point that even though the law was helpful for a time, it's not necessary to the gospel. In fact, the, the law can't give life. If it could, it would have, but it can't. It can't do that. Paul uses the words locked up in verse 22 because that's the best the law could do. Remember those, those guidelines, those guardrails. It was meant to protect the Jewish people, God's people from straying too far. But that's not life. That's survival at best, trying to keep inside the lines. The gospel brings freedom. But the Jewish believers, these uh, 
these Jewish believers who are overemphasizing the Jewish culture are trying to put this on par with the gospel or inside the gospel. They're holding on to an illusion that the, the law can give life, and it just can't. And before Jesus arrived, they were held in custody under the law. The law can't give life, but Jesus, the gospel, can. Paul starts to give a distinct timeline here for the then and the now. What was happening before Jesus arrived and now what's happening after his sacrifice, resurrection, and ascension, these two differing spaces. In the then category, Paul's talking about this custody, this sort of prison under the law, but it's not necessarily a jail like we think of in our modern circumstances today where you're tried, convicted, and then locked away in a cell. It's similar to being held under guard. It's a protective sort of thing where you're held in custody and you're in a holding pattern until a decision can be made. Again, Paul pointing out the law was for the protection of God's people. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, again on Galatians, uh, sort of compares this to uh, a babysitter, what we think of as a babysitter today. Uh, while it's helpful for a time to keep track of God's people, make sure they're staying safe, make sure they're following all the rules, make sure they're eating their vegetables, it's not necessary for a time, after, afterward. There's a time where it is necessary, but then we grow out of it. And in a similar way, for an adult to go back to a babysitter and it would feel weird and awkward and I'd have some questions, it would be weird for God's people to go back under the law when God has given them freedom in the gospel. Not only is the law not required anymore, but it's actually not healthy. We can stand on our own in the gospel. We can stand in Jesus in the gospel. But this also means that Abraham's family is finally where it was meant to be. One family identified by the faith they have in Jesus, in the same way that Abraham was identified by his faith. I love that connection. I love that we as the church, we as the family of God, are identified in the same way that Abraham was identified by our faith. I think that's so cool. I love when God makes those decade, hundreds, centuries, thousands of years long connections. But here's where we get to our thesis statement, that, that part we mentioned before. Paul turns the corner. He's been talking a lot about the law. He's a, talking a lot about the then. And now we turn to what is happening here. In verse 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Again, we've been talking a lot about the law. We've been talking a lot about this Jewish history. And as Paul is talking through the role of the law, the value to the Jewish people, the value to the history of God's people, it's important to note that before the arrival of Jesus, God's people were uh, sort of contained to one people group. It was contained to the nation of Israel. It was restricted. But Paul says, that was then. This is now. The family of Abraham, the children of God, his people are now across the world. They are not just Israelites. They are not just Jewish. They are anyone who has faith in Jesus. 
To sum up this triumphant call to the truth of the gospel, there's five clear points. All believers are baptized in Christ. They are clothed with Christ. They are one in Christ. They belong to Christ, and they are heirs to Abraham. Now, if you're like me, you see that last little bullet point up there and go, oh, man, it was just so close to being that like perfect little rhythm of cadences, but it's a little bit different. But that last bullet point is incredibly important. Heirs to Abraham. Paul has used this familial language this whole time, that the church, the, the people of God is not just a nation, it's a family. It is a group of people that are connected, unified. And so as he's talking to the church in Galatia, heirs to Abraham, that family language makes a lot of sense because that's what the people of God have been. But now all believers in Jesus are a part of that family. And as much as that's important to the church in Galatia, it's still important for us today because thousands of years after this letter was written, when someone comes to faith in Jesus, they are still brought into the family of Abraham. They are still brought into the church. We are brought together as one family. Our, per, our, our faith is a personal decision that we make, yes, but when it is made, we live that faith out in community, amongst each other, in the family of God. As I close, I'm going to ask the band to come back up, but I think this is something for us to consider today. The problems that the Galatian church was having are not so far off from the issues that the church has today. Sure, we're not arguing over the use of the Old Testament law anymore, but what about the disunity in the church as a whole? The lines that we draw over ethnic and cultural, social, racial, or political lines these walls that we've put up between ourselves that have nothing to do with the church, they have nothing to do with the gospel. If Paul was to write the church a letter today, I think he'd still be calling us fools. I think he'd still be looking at the church wondering how we've gotten the gospel so tangled up in things that have nothing to do with the gospel and how little we seem to care about this disunity. And while the church is a much, much larger group of people now, I believe that the book of Galatians is calling us to remember what the gospel is. Remember that the gospel brings unity. Tim Keller, in his commentary on the Galatians, quotes his own pastor, Dick Kaufman, and says this about the Christian life. Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of life. But we are not just saved by the gospel. We grow by applying the gospel to every area of life. The gospel is not meant to be just present at our conversion. It's meant to be present throughout all of our life. It propels our growth. It shapes who we are. And the gospel is welcoming to all. It's not exclusive to one group uh, or another. Paul's message for the Galatians was to hold to the gospel and nothing else and to be unified. And I think the message for us is the same today, that we are to hold to the gospel and that we are to be unified with Christ and with each other. One of our strategic focuses here at FCC is loving community. I think it's really hard to have loving community if we can't be unified as a church. If we have walls and lines drawn between us, that loving community suffers. The church suffers. And so as uh, we close, I'm going to pray and ask God that he would bring uni unity to this place, but also unity to the church as a whole 
that we as FCC are unified with our brothers and sisters in Christ here in Fremont at other churches who are meeting this morning as well. But we would also be unified with those abroad and further still. So would you all pray, pray with me? God, we know that Paul cared deeply about this unity for the church, that he cared deeply for the unity of the family of God. God, we ask that you would grow that care in us, that, God, we would seek to be unified as a family, that we would seek to be unified as a church. God, here at FCC as this local group, but God, allow us to be unified with our brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere as well. God, allow us not to, to draw lines in the sand, allow us not to put up walls because we disagree on this or that, but God, allow us to lift the banner, the name of Jesus high above all else. God, we pray for unity here. We pray all this in your name. Amen.